HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Feast Your Ears is produced here uh, in the studio by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. I would like to implore you to help us keep HRN alive and become a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. You can do that anytime. It's open 24-7 right there on the Internet. Today is episode number 38 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm joined on the phone by Jules Optin-Himmel, who is an oyster and kelp farmer uh, in Rhode Island. Oh, it seems like our uh, our phone connection is uh, we're having a little trouble. So I will I will tell you sort of a little bit of backstory about Jules and how I know Jules. Um, Jules contacted me at the Brooklyn Kitchen a few years ago. He has a company called Walrus and Carpenter Oysters, named after the Lewis Carroll poem um, that appears in Through the Looking Glass. And he had started raising oysters in Ninigret Pond, which is in Rhode Island on the shore. And he was starting to offer a uh, CSF, a community-supported fishery program, where he um, was basically letting people order oysters for the holidays, um, and then he would bring them down to New York. And his first drop-off location in New York, we had one at the Brooklyn Kitchen, and he had one at his mom's apartment. Uh, do we, are you on the line now, Jules? 
Yes, I am. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, so, Jules, I was just giving a little a little introduction. Um, thanks for joining me uh, on Feast Your Ears. I'm sorry that you're not able to be in the studio, um, but it's about 95 degrees and hot in New York, and I hope, <laughs> that, I hope that you're on the water in Rhode Island where it's probably a little nicer. I'm right by the water on land, but it is the nice sea breeze here, and it's probably about 80. Nice. Very nice. Sorry Sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I, uh, one of these days, I, I will make it up there, uh, up there to the farm. Um, yeah. I, I, possibly this weekend, actually. I may have to be in Rhode Island nice. this weekend. I'll be in touch. We'll be around. We'd love to have you. Yeah. So, um, Jules, I wanted to sort of, uh, I was just giving the sort of backstory about how Walrus and Carpenter got started, but I'd love to sort of have you talk a little, or at least how I met you and Walrus and Carpenter. Um, but can you talk sure. a little bit about sort of what led you into the world of oyster farming? Um, I mean, as I understand it, you grew up here in New York City where, you know, I know it's a, we're a, we're a city known for historically being very oyster centric. Um, That's true. But there's not a lot of oyster farming here. So how did you uh, no. how did you find yourself in Rhode Island raising oysters? Yeah, that, that's a good question. A lot of people ask me that, and to be honest, I don't have a great answer. It was kind of a lot of series of unpredictable events that led me to owning and operating an oyster farm. Not most of my friends growing up in Manhattan. I've never left New York, and they think it's odd that I'm an oyster farmer. And when I tell people in Rhode Island that I'm from New York, they all look at me funny as well. Right, so, right. You get it from both sides. Yeah, kind of. Um, but, yeah, so I did grow up in Manhattan, um, but I studied environmental science in undergrad and grad school. Really wanted to work outside since I was, you know, a teenager and really loved the outdoors and nature. Thought I'd be a scientist or a forestry or some sort of resource manager, and I did that for a while. Um, and then I started working in shellfish restoration uh, after studying forestry and found a lot of similarities. And was working for the Nature Conservancy in New England, doing some restoration projects with clams and oysters, and uh, met a bunch of other or oyster farmers and really liked the lifestyle uh, that they had and thought it seemed like a good business that was good for the environment and also where you could make a living. And I was really interested in you know, business that was good for the environment and economically sustainable. So it seemed like a good fit and decided to try and find a spot to lease land underwater um, somewhere in New England. And it turned out that Rhode Island was the most inviting, uh, the community of other oyster growers here and the state was promoting aquaculture so moved to rhode island about five years ago started the farm seven years ago um, but then made the full-time move here and quit my day job about five years ago and been doing it ever since cool and and the the area where you're located is is sort of like the southern shore of rhode island right and, yeah, it's called South County. And and right al- along there in South County, I mean, there are you know people who who eat Northeast oysters um, might recognize a lot of the names, but may not know that they're all sort of from this stretch of area, right? So yeah. you have Walrus and Carpenter, you have Matunic oysters, you have East mm-hmm. Beach Blondes are there. Um, who are some mm-hmm. of your other neighbors? Yeah, well, in Immigrant Pond, where we have a six-acre lease, uh, we're right next to. East Beach Blondes and Ninigrit Nectars, um, where our farm is between those two. That's Nick Papa and Matt Behan. Both great guys. Um, you know, and like you said, the salt ponds is kind of, I don't know if it's the majority anymore, but it was where the majority of the farms were because it's an easy place to get started. It's very protected and shallow. You don't need a big boat. You don't need a lot of heavy equipment. So if you're just, like I started with a, Honda Civic and a 14-foot aluminum boat, and I was sleeping in a tent. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know. living in my, I was living in Boston, uh, 
at, and then commuting down. So, I mean, you know, the the low barrier to entry, I think, is is important there, right? I mean, um, exactly. You know, it, it sounds like a much easier type of farming to get into than, say, land farming, right? I mean, if you're trying yeah. to raise vegetables, um, you know, to do that at any kind of scale, not only do you need land, but you need heavy equipment to a certain extent. You're going to need a tractor. You're going to need, um, you know, a truck. You're going to yep. need a lot of stuff. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you lease the land from the state and it's $50 an acre is a, makes it very easy compared to a lot of my friends who are terrestrial farmers and they really struggle with land tenure and where to have their farms. And, you know, Rhode Island's one of the most expensive. Land is the most expensive in Rhode Island, I think only second in New Jersey maybe. Mm. So if you're paying more than $10,000 an acre, right. it's pretty hard to, to justify agriculture as the highest and best use without some sort of subsidy. Right. Um, the other, the challenges with aquaculture is that we're farming in the commons. So mm-hmm. it, I just got a new lease in Narragansett Bay. There's a deep water lease, and we'll take bigger equipment. But it took three years to get that lease because of opposition, um, mostly from landowners on the water, riparian landowners who didn't want to see our operation. Which, which has always sort of confused me, right? There's a, the, uh, my family, um, we spend a lot of time on the coast of Maine, and there's a mm-hmm. mussel farm off of, off of where we go. And mm-hmm. same thing happened. There was this huge opposition to this because they said it was going to be an eyesore. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look like anything. Yeah, I mean, when we're not there, all you see are you know, the corners or some floats. Right. Up. Right. I mean, it always, I always found that so weird. And I always felt like one of the reasons that areas become interesting to people for coastal vacations is because they're exciting, right? And you yeah, see Yeah, and there's working happening. waterfront. I mean, I think that the loss of working waterfront is a real shame, and it's hurt the economy and the identity of Rhode Island, whereas Maine's done a much better job of preserving it and, and has, you know, probably more tourists per capita, I would imagine. Sure. Um, you know, if you, if you maintain a working waterfront and send a condominiums or multi-million dollar homes, then people want to be there because it's interesting. Like you said, I'm in Point Judith right now where our shop is, and it's the second largest fishing port um, in the United States, or at least on the East Coast. And, like, people come here just to check it out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a real... And- to me, that's a, a kind of interesting fact that I think people don't think about that, you know, less than three hours from New York City is this huge port where most of the fish that comes into the Northeast actually comes in. Um, yeah. And, you know, anybody who's sitting in a restaurant right now, anybody who orders squid in New York City today, probably that squid came in through Point Judith. Well, yeah, definitely. But unfortunately, most of that gets shipped overseas to be processed and then shipped back. But that's a whole other. <laughs> story that I'm not an expert on, no, we, but it, it, it does point out what I like about our business is that we harvest and deliver the same day to about 45 restaurants twice a week year-round, and there's no middlemen, and the transportation, you know, is at a most two hours. So not only is the product very fresh, yep. there's less silver carbon footprint, and it, it really is what makes our business possible by cutting out the middleman for me. Right. There's different models. You could grow more for and sell it for less, but we'd rather grow less at a better quality and sell it for more direct to restaurants. Um, and I will tell listeners. I mean, I you know, yes, I'm biased because I'm friends with Jules, and yes, I'm biased because mm-hmm. we sell Warrell's Carpenter oysters at the Brooklyn Kitchen, but they're really good. Um, Thank you. you. Know, I will. Uh, I will make the same offer. A few weeks ago, I had um, some of our uh, scallop 
folks who were getting some scallops there coming out of New Jersey on the show and interviewed them. I'm having a seafood-heavy season here. And I'll make the same offer to listeners about Jules' oysters that I made to them, which is if you come into the Brooklyn Kitchen and you mention at the fish counter that you heard this interview with Jules, we'll give you a free Walrus and Carpenter oyster. Nice. Hi, good idea. So I encourage everybody who's listening to come and come and, and take us up on that. So you mentioned um, you mentioned that you you harvest oysters year round. So I'd like to talk you know a little bit about the the physiology of oysters and how they're how they're grown from you know baby oysters mm-hmm. up to up to marketable size, but also you know you mentioned year round. There's sort of a, an old thing and, and perhaps we're now beyond that in the world. And customers sometimes ask me you know about not eating oysters in months without ours. Right, right. Yeah, I get that question a lot as well. So, you know, um, what, what, you know, so how do you, you know, when someone says, oh, it's July, I don't want to eat oysters. Yeah. Well, a lot of that is a vestige of when there wasn't refrigeration. So you certainly don't want to eat an oyster that hasn't been put on ice immediately after harvested and then kept at 40 degrees. So oysters, at least in Rhode Island, I think across the country, uh, one of the most heavily regulated foods, only second to milk. Right. And um, so we have very strict rules. We have to harvest from the first oyster that comes out of the water in the summer has to be, the last oyster has to come out no more than two hours from then. And as soon as they come out of the water, they get iced, and then they're in the cooler less than two hours. We do it in about an hour because our farm is pretty close to the dock. Um, so as long as you're buying from a reputable source that has a tag and has a brand name, yep. then they'll be held to those standards. And we have every incentive. I mean, if we're trying to sell millions of oysters, the last thing we want to do is someone to get sick. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Whereas if you buy one from, you know, someone that doesn't put a tag on it or name on they don't really have any skin in the game, so to speak. But because our brand is represented by that oyster, we need to protect it. And uh, all the other growers, we all kind of police each other. And um, I think it's perfectly safe to eat oysters now in the summer. If you're immune compromised, you don't want to be eating raw fish or any At kind all, of raw right. food. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of the problems that do happen down south, where it's warmer, even warmer, and people that really shouldn't be eating raw seafood are the ones that typically get sick, in my opinion. It's the one I've heard. But so the months of R, the other thing about the months of R is that they often are spawning in July and June, and sometimes the meat quality won't be as good. Hmm. But now there's um, we grow diploid oysters and triploid oysters, and they're not genetically modified. They're just bred the triploids are bred to be asexual, kind of like a mule. Ah. So they don't actually reproduce, so therefore in the summer their meat quality never goes down. I they see. also grow faster because they're not spending time reproducing. Got it. And so what, what, is the di- what is a diploid in, or a triploid oyster? What does that mean? Um, it's just a number of gametes that they have. So oh. a trip diploid can reproduce, but a, gam- uh, triplo- a diploid can reproduce, a triploid can't. Um, exactly why it has to like go back to high school. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we have found that the meat quality on the triploids is, you know, excellent year-round, and you get an oyster in July and August that kind of looks like what our diploids look like in September, October, November. So, got it. So, so tell me a little bit about the timeline. So, I mean, how does how does it work? Where do you where do you get tiny little baby oysters? Do you grow them yourself yeah. in your operation? Do you buy them from somebody no, else? No, we buy them. We buy two million oysters every mid-May from three different hatcheries on the East Coast. And they arrive, and it's about two-liter package, all of them combined. Um, and they look like grain of sand, and they're very expensive grains of sand. Wow, it's so two, mi- two million of them fit them. in two quarts. Yeah, 
or two liters about, and that costs about $15,000 Wow, at that size. Um, so you want to be really careful with them. And then we put them in something called an upweller, which is basically a greenhouse underwater, or the equivalent of what a greenhouse does for land farmers. It allows us to start baby oysters earlier in the season hmm. and to grow them up faster because we're not increasing the temperature like a greenhouse would, um, but we're increasing the flow and the amount of oxygen so, therefore, uh, we're increasing the flow so they get more oxygen and more food, and they grow a lot faster than they would in the wild. So, it's like it's under a floating dock, and it has these boxes with very fine mesh screens, like 500 micron screen, and a pump that's running 24-7. And that's bringing, like, an artificial flow, artificial current through those 2 million baby oysters. So, by next week, we'll start taking them out, and they'll be thumbnail size. Got it. So they, so so they grow from grain of sand. Starting in July, and we take the thumbnail-sized ones out to the six-acre farm, and they grow in mesh bags that are three feet by a foot and a half in the water in rows of racks. So each rack holds ten bags, and we have about eight or 9,000 bags on the farm with three different age class of oysters and four different size classes. And so if someone comes into the Brooklyn Kitchen today and, and takes me up on my offer for a free Walrusson Carpenter oyster, how old is that oyster? Typically two to three years. Got it. So you yeah. make so you're so, making an just that so so I just I want to just sort of lay it out for listeners right the the sort of the time and, and dollar investment that you know you mm-hmm. you're you're investing fifteen thousand dollars now or a couple months ago you invested fifteen thousand dollars in two million oysters and mm-hmm. then you have to take care of those and sort of be the steward of them growing for two to three years. So those yeah, oysters that you just put in. employees working full-time. So right. the majority of our costs are labor. Yeah, so so those oysters that you got as tiny little grains of sand this May, you'll be sending to restaurants in New York in 2018, 2019, depending on how exactly. fast they grow. yeah. Hopefully, if they stay alive. <laughs> right, that's the other thing. So, I mean, so are there, um, you know, I know that obviously just like with a terrestrial farmer, um, you know, there are things that can happen, blights and weather and things like mm-hmm. that. I, uh, I know a couple of years ago there was a big storm um, that blew in a bunch of uh, a bunch of seaweed, right, that died yep, and, yep. and basically drowned the oysters essentially. Yeah, it suffocated yeah. a couple a 100,000 plus market oysters that were all ready for the winter. Uh. Uh, and and so what I mean what is your biggest threat is that kind of weather event your biggest threat are there are there pests um, that you need to watch um, out for are well, there predators so we only, on average we probably have thirty percent survival rate in Ninigrid, which is not you know is not the highest in the industry but not the lowest and we it's one of the reasons we applied and are starting a new farm where we hope we'll have a higher survival rate because the water's cooler and there's more flow so the big limitation in Ninigrid is there's not enough flow and the water gets too warm. So in August and September, the oysters get stressed out, and they're just not as robust as they were, and they can't fight off um, a couple different diseases that can kill oysters. They're harmless to humans, but um, over time, they'll kill oysters. So that's how we probably lose most. And then there is the you know big event that could happen, and it's always a risk, and that seems to happen every five years. I see. So you're preparing for the next ones, unfortunately, right now? Yeah. I mean, you just never know. Hurricane, seaweed, whatever. It's always something. Yeah, of course. Of course. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a short break and uh, hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And uh, when we come back, I will keep talking. I've been talking with Jules Optin-Hemmel of Walrus and Carpenter Oysters.
Americans throw away 58 billion disposable cups every year. A lot of those cups will still be around long after you're dead. Kind of dark, I know, but I'm Greg from Kapow, and we decided to do something about it. We created the only glass travel mug that's 100% U.S. made. You can check it out alongside our complete line of everyday reusables at kapow.com, C-U-P-P-O-W.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today I'm speaking with Jules Opton-Hemmel of Walrus and Carpenter Oysters out of Ninigrit, Rhode Island. Uh, you can check them out online, walrusandcarpenteroysters.com. And uh, I definitely I encourage you to, to have a look at their website. Um, I, I On there, I believe it lists all of the places that the oysters are available. Um, and you can certainly, um, I believe, uh, you know, if you happen to be uh, in... South County, Rhode Island. Um, you could probably even stop by and have a look at the farm. Yeah, absolutely. And we do tours every Thursday and Friday. Cool. So that's you should go on a Thursday yeah, or Friday. Yeah, from four to six sure. all summer. Awesome. Um, so before the break, um, we were talking a little bit about sort of oysters and, and how they get to market. Um, I want to shift now to what happens after they get to market, right? Um, so, uh, so Jules, are you, a, are you a hinge opener or a side opener for your oysters? Yeah. Hinge opener, hinge opener. Yeah. Me, me too. I'm, I'm definitely. I'm also a hinge opener. Although I will say, I went uh, recently to. A, I, I attended a wake, um, and uh, and it was actually a really great party. The the, uh, the the gentleman who had passed away had written into his will that a party be thrown and that all nice. of his favorite foods and drinks be served rather than no. having any kind of service. Um, and so yeah. there were oysters. Um, and this was Sweet. in Washington D.C. And so the oysters came out of Chesapeake Bay. And I will say that standing there opening those. Virginia oysters, um, they definitely were easier to open on the side than the hinge, which I found really interesting. I don't know if that... Those shells heavier? Yeah, I guess, I guess it was the way that the shells were. They just, they, they weren't, they were not really cooperating from the hinge side, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but they were really, they were easier to open from the side, which I've never experienced. I've always been a hinge side opener myself. Yeah. Some of those wild, chest, if, it were, if it was a wild oyster or like a ranch oyster... The shells can get so heavy that they're really hard to open. Mm, that might have been. Maybe that was the reason. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the the uh, about kelp. So you're now mm-hmm. you're now growing kelp as well as oysters, and are you, are you raising those things interspersed with each other? Or are they, you know, are um, they symbiotic? Yeah. Well, the idea was to do it on the same area, more from a business than from an ecological perspective, because the oyster growing season is made in November, so that's when the bulk of our work and staff is and the maintenance, and then we've got to, you know, we only keep three full-time people year-round, and then for seasonal, so kelp grows from May to, um, I'm sorry, from November to April, so it's the exact opposite growing season. So that was one of the appeals is to be able to have more full-time jobs. Hmm. Um, but in terms of an ecological perspective, because they're not growing at the same time, they don't really have that. You know, people are, a lot of scientists are interested in multi-trophic aquaculture where, you know, the fish waste would be consumed by the shellfish and then the shellfish waste would be consumed by the, by the seaweed. And it's a great concept, but in practice, in reality, it's hard to achieve um, not only from well, just like a logistical and a permitting perspective. Uh, so we had a hard, hard time getting um, a year-round lease in the spot we wanted to grow kelp because it's heavily used in the summer. Yeah. We had to 
band in that and then apply for a different spot. So we'll actually be growing kelp and oysters in two different spots next year. Hopefully in the future we'll be able to do it in the same spot. And the other thing, not only the employment opportunity, but also logistics, we could use some of the same infrastructure for both crops. I see. And save some money that way. Um, and the the kelp, I mean, I'm 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 hoping we can figure out a way to get it regularly at the Brooklyn Kitchen. It was you yeah. sent me a sample of it, and it was great. Um, I really right. I really liked it. I I took some of it and I blanched it and cut it up into a seaweed salad. I took cool. some of it and I sautéed it like any kind of sort of hearty green um, mm-hmm. with you know with garlic and onions. Um, and I thought that was mm-hmm. really delicious with a little red pepper flake and vinegar. Um, right. What uh, What's your favorite way to uh, to eat oysters? I just raw by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what 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 you know what determines a quality oyster? Like when you you know if someone was to hand you you know a a, a plate of oysters blind, mm-hmm. um, you know what do you look for in a in a good oyster? So I can't look at it, just taste it. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, looking yeah, at it, but, at but, it. but not, knowing, but not knowing where it's from. You know, like if someone right, just right, handed right. you a plate of oysters. I mean, well, what we trying to do for our chefs and the feedback we've got it is. They want a deep cup on the oyster, so it has more meat. Mm. They want a medium-sized oyster, not an oyster that's as big as your hand and not one that's ridiculously small, um, because that appeals to the widest variety of their customers. Um, they want a hard shell that won't break when they shuck it. Um, that's a big challenge. And um, the meat quality, you want to it really, your husbandry techniques have a lot to do with the meat quality. So if you overcrowd the oysters or you don't clean the gear enough, then the meat quality is going to go down and you'll get a watery oyster that really doesn't taste like anything. And I see that way too often. I mean, as the industry is growing, and I guess I was guilty about this myself, in the first couple of years, I was so excited and tried to grow the business and took on way more than we could do, and our quality of our product was not as good. And now in the last two or three years, we're figuring out um, systems and things are just kind of working better. We, we know what to expect and how to plan and I think our product is a lot better for it, so the meat quality is a lot better, which means the oyster is going to be sweeter and richer and just have more substance to it. So, um, yeah, so I, I mean, I recommend that people definitely look for those things. I, for one, um, advocate for not putting cocktail sauce on oysters. I know lots of Agreed. oyster bars will serve cocktail sauce, but to me, um, you know, cocktail sauce is fine on clams on the half shell i feel like mm-hmm. clams have a um a sharper flavor and i feel mm-hmm. like the sweetness and the and the sort of horseradish in there definitely i feel like you, the, the clam can stand up to it but i find Agreed. i find oysters um really you know much more than clams um have a taste of where they're raised and if mm-hmm. you put something as sweet and like sort of like i don't know sort of i don't know gross as like it, it just, just masks it, the flavor, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It, the flavors it, are subtle. You have to have a pretty, you know, a, a palate to taste. You have to... I mean, you could tell the difference between a Wellfleet and a Walrus and Carpenter no matter what kind of palate you have, just based on the brine. Yep. You know, some oysters either really brine or it's not, and that's the thing you taste the most. But beyond that, there's a lot of different subtle flavors that I'm not good at describing, but I do know that they're there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what And then what about um, what about actual species of oysters? Well, everything that's grown from Canada to Mexico is the eastern oyster, with the only exception of some Euro- European flat oysters that are grown in Maine. Hmm. So we only have one native species on the East Coast, or, or I believe now at least, and those are the only ones you're allowed to farm. 
Um, so you're not allowed to farm a non-native species. On the West Coast, they can farm a whole different variety of species because they kind of got grandfathered in from the in the 1800s. They brought oysters from the East Coast to the West Coast, so everything's kind of changed over there anyway. Got it. And I, I understand, I, I read an anecdote somewhere about um, one of the first cross-country shipments that was made when they finally completed the railroad um, oh, yeah? across the country in the in the 19th century was actually barrels of oysters that, really? were, that were shipped yeah. from New York, I believe, to San Francisco. Um, and, crazy. of course, it, I mean, it, you know, at that time there was no Panama Canal, so shipping by boat didn't, it was impossible. It was weeks right, and right. weeks. But I, uh, I did read somewhere that they packed a couple of barrels full of salt and ice and seaweed and oysters and shipped them cross-country by train. Yeah, I mean, in the winter you can ship and store oysters. People, I've heard anecdotes of people in New England that farmers used to go down to the coast when the oyster season opened up and get bushels and bushels and then store them in their basement all winter and just eat them as a snack. Yeah. So they do last really well as long as they're kept at forty degrees. Yeah, I mean, so that I mean, what you know, what kind of guidelines would you offer to someone? Um, you know, how how long can you store an oyster if you properly keep it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you properly keep it, uh, you can store it for at least two weeks in the fridge. I mean, I've had oysters in the month or a month that are fine, but sometimes they'll start to lose the liqueur and then they won't be as good. So, yeah. so then the week, first week is best, but two weeks is fine as long as you keep them at forty degrees. If you're going to store them for a while, you want to store them upside down so that they don't have to work as hard to keep their shells closed. So you can stack them all upside down in a bowl. You don't want to store them in water. You don't want to freeze them, and they need to breathe, so you don't want to seal them up. So take take note of that, listeners. Um, and and you know, I always recommend that if you are going to eat, if you want to eat the oysters raw on the half shell, obviously fresher is better. Um, mm-hmm. If you're gonna, if you're going to cook with them, you know, if you if you buy a bunch of oysters and you just don't get to them and they sit in your fridge for a week, as long as you're storing them the way Jules describes, um, I'll often make a you know a quick stew, pan roast, something like that. I mean, yeah, of, and they're great on the grill too. Yep, I mean, one of my one of my favorite meals related to oysters, um, and I try to have it you know a couple times a year. If you're passing through Grand Central, do yourself a favor, go to the oyster bar down in the basement there, sit at the lunch counter and order a pan roast. Um, I don't mm. know I don't know what the price is up to, but I mean, it, you know, as recently as like last year, I think, I mean, it was like one of the best deals in town. I think the oyster pan roast, you know, it's got six or eight full oysters in there um, and comes with, you know, bread and butter on the side. And I think it's like nine bucks. Mm. Um, and plus, you get to be yeah. in that room. I mean, in you know, the Oyster Bar, I, th- I think, is one of the greatest restaurants in New York City. It just yeah. it's got such a great feeling to it. And then you can try zillions of oysters. But uh, you know, Jules mentioned earlier, you know, customers don't really want big oysters. If you wanted to try a giant oyster, that is the <laughs> only place that I've consistently seen like extra large or double extra large oysters, and they <laughs> really are enormous. But I don't <laughs> recommend that you order one, um, honestly, because trying to eat that on the half shell, it's like multiple bites. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like awkward yeah i mean you're talking like you know hamburger chicken breast sized oyster which is a little bit much i feel like if you cooked it you know soup stew you know gratin gumbo whatever that's totally fine you can cut it up but trying to eat that guy on the half shell is really a little tough i would say yeah agreed agreed um well jules we're we're nearing our end um do you have any anything coming up or any other um projects that you want people to let people know about i i know that you know people it's it's a little early to start thinking about it but jules does come to new york himself um around thanksgiving and and christmas and new years and so Mm -hmm. you can order oysters direct and meet meet the farmer um and pick them up so that's a program people should look out for yeah you'll be able to order on our website this year 
And um, in the evening pickups, we too we have a keg of beer, and it's a good time when we talk about oysters. And this is the fifth year, or this will be the sixth year, and we've got a few hundred people that have come every year, and it, it's, it's a nice tradition. Um, in addition to that, we're doing farm dinners, but they're unfortunately all sold out this year. We do eight farm dinners where different chef that we work with comes down, prepares a four-course meal on a sandbar right behind our farm, and you get a tour of the farm and a raw bar in the water. You go to the beach, and then you eat a delicious meal. That's so those, I mean, everybody should set a calendar, I think, event for next year to make sure they don't yeah, miss it. Yeah, the tickets will go on sale on June 15th in 2017. They sold out in seven minutes this year, so you've got to be like right at your computer at 9 a.m. on June 15th. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to set my I'm going to set my alarm because that sounds like <laughs> and a lot of fun. They're super fun. They're really a good time. And then we do these tours on Thursdays and Fridays, so um, those are for six people at a time, and you get a full look at the farm, the nursery, and the estuary, and the whole explanation. It, it, it's the best way to see how an oyster farm works. It's hard to describe a farm underwater in just words until you see it. So. Great. And, uh, and you know, I encourage people to come and try them. We're trying to keep them in stock almost all the time at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, and if you wanted to pre-order them, if you decide you want to have a walrus and carpenter party this summer, let me know. Let us know at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Um, happy to happy to get them for you and, and order them for you. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to close today before my sort of final remarks with the end of Lewis Carroll's poem, The Walrus and the nice. Carpenter. Um, nice. I felt like reading the whole thing would be a bit much, but I do recommend everybody go take a look at it. It is, it's a great poem, but so I'm going I'm to read the end of it. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size. Holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter. You've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. Perfect. So thanks again, Jules, for joining me today on Feast Your Ears. And uh, I will be in touch. I, I definitely want to stop by and, and hope to see you soon. Yeah, hope to see you in Rhode Island. And thank you for the opportunity, Gary. appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. A big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here, and David Tattashore for engineering the show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.